Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frizz Breeze with Jake and Randy. Hey, Jake, how you doing, man? I'm doing wonderful. How are you, Randy? Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, really excited about our show that we have today, but uh, just want to encourage everyone to continue to comment on the Facebook page and give us feedback on frisbeeguru.com as it really helps us to uh, be engaged with you and find out what people are liking and what they would like to uh, perhaps see and hear more of. Yeah, definitely. And if you uh, are on the Facebook page, like the page. Uh, if you're on Frisbee Guru, just leave a comment in the comment section. That really helps us out. Um, so this episode, I'm very excited about it. Uh, we got a chance to talk to Deaton Mitchell and find out how Frisbee came into his life. And it's just such a fun story that I can't wait for you guys all to hear it. So uh, I'll just stop talking and let you hear it. I'd like to welcome in Deaton Mitchell. Deaton. Thanks for joining us on Shooting the Frisbees. It is my pleasure, Randy. How did Frisbee come into your life? How did, how did, that, how did that take shape for you? Okay. Um, 1979, uh, my roommate at the time uh, and my best bud, Dino Sherman, of course, you've never heard of this guy. We were kind of... I guess what you'd call hippie jocks, you know, um, we would play pickup basketball. We rode 10 speeds. This is when, uh, the running craze was in full force. Uh, braces were popping up all over the place. So, and one day, uh, the 141 Frisbee that we used for various things around the house. Um, you guys probably both know that Frisbees have, a myriad of practical uses other than just flying through the air. There's, I have one in my toolbox. It's uh, used to organize stuff. So anyway, so the 141 uh, makes its way out to the LSU parade grounds that we didn't know at the time uh, was kind of the place to play Frisbee in Baton Rouge. Of course, um, like a lot of places, uh, a college campus is going to be the hub um, so we're sitting there, you know, I really didn't know how to throw a Frisbee, but this is fun. We're out in the sunshine and there's these two guys all the way across the parade grounds that we see. And, you know, they got on the tube socks and the bandanas. And it's the first time I ever saw a nail delay live and wow. blown away. The guys' names were Stu Law and Greg Bryce. Of course, these are names that you have not heard but these are guys that you know had a huge impact on on my life and you know i kept watching them and watching them and i kept saying man i want to go ask those guys how they do that and finally my buddy dino was like okay you've said that like seven times go over there and ask them so i got up the nerve to go over and strike up a conversation and tell them how cool i thought it was and pick their brain and they explained to me it's not spinning on your fingertip it's spinning on your fingernail and uh, neither one of these guys wore fake nails it's um you know kind of uh basic freestyle but to me it was like just unbelievable and they were very willing to talk to us and tell us about the frisbee scene in baton rouge they were playing with a pink hdx lube it up with 
Armor All. You guys remember those days, right? Oh, Rain yeah. Okay. Jake, do you remember Armor All? No, it was before my time, Armor All, but I've heard stories okay. about Armor All many times. <laughs> Trust me, it's not the best. It kind of gummed up, but I guess everybody was kind of figuring this out. So anyway, so I see this, and I guess it took a little while for it to really stick with me this was i don't know maybe late summer 79 I, i'm not exactly i know it was 79 and my friend dino actually learned how to nail delay before i did and was got pretty good at it uh with this 141 um he spun it counter so it was more about the fall of 79 if i know it was after football season it started uh, a lot of things here in the south I can correlate with what football season was going on. Randy can kind of tell you how important that is, too. So anyway, all right, my first Frisbees, my first real Frisbees, my parents got for me with S&H green stamps. Again, we're going way back in time, and they got me the world-class set, a 165, a 141, and a 119. And I think John Kirkland's name was on this particular model. And Monica Lou? Not exactly sure. Maybe Monica Lou, maybe Joe Cahow, I don't know. And then it was Cray Bansickle, because we played with the white 165s for a long time. So I remember the progression of names on there, getting to you know Scott Zimmerman, who then etched his right. name on there basically permanently. Uh, I love that 165, by the way. I loved those, that world-class 165. That was a great disc. It was a great disc. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. And um, so I have the three Frisbees and um, first slick, furniture polish. <laughs> I used to spin a basketball on my finger. Actually, I still spin a basketball on my finger. Um, I spun it clock because I could keep, I could rev it up with my left hand. I'd be spinning it on my right hand and then rev it with my left hand. So when I picked up a Frisbee, that was the way that I first spun it um and i know a lot of people learn clock first because a lot of people throw backhands predominantly um if you learn when you're playing ultimate and you know guys are really into the sidearm a lot of people learn counter that's how pat carrasco my good friend down here uh learned counter but in my case i was spinning clock because that's the way i spun a basketball and you guys both went through this same phase you kept that frisbee in your hand all the time and you spun it and you spun it and you spun it and you spun it and then you would try to do a trick and slowly you would build on the nail delay um so really i kind of uh learned backwards i went straight to freestyle um and i did not go through the phase of doing overall being a heaver playing ultimate so a lot of the fundamentals of throw and catch, I learned after uh, my freestyle career, um, at least the hardcore portion of it, had ended. <laughs> uh, I think I probably became a better overall Frisbee thrower when I got heavy into ultimate in the, the late 80s. So anyway, there's, there's the story on how I got into freestyle. Definitely changed my life. In what way? What in the? In... Uh, my life started to revolve. <laughs> All right, I was in LSU at the time. Dino and I kind of went off, and we kind of did our own thing. 
really I didn't make an appearance out to the parade grounds uh, until I learned a few tricks. The first person that I met out there was a good friend of all of ours, Jeff Getty Freeman. So I met him in late 79, and we started throwing together. And maybe a month afterwards, there was this kind of chunky guy that was spinning it uh, before an ultimate game. And I asked him to throw some, and he kept saying, well, I'm an ultimate player. I just kind of do this as, you know, I'm just warming up or whatever. And this was Pat Carrasco. So uh, (laughs) within a month of each other, uh, you know, I met two of the very, very, very best friends that I've ever had. You know, actually, the people that I consider my closest friends in the world, they're all the guys that I play Frisbee freestyle with. I didn't realize that I didn't realize that Getty was one of the first people that you met. He was my first partner. So I've met um, I met Getty. I've met Pat. And so Getty and I. we're playing in some state tournaments, and uh, the first tournament that I ever went to was a golf tournament in Austin, Texas, at Waterloo Park. I'd been playing about eight months, um, really didn't know that much, so I went over there and I played with uh, Jeff Freeman. And so we went over to this golf tournament, and I was blown away. Even though it was a golf tournament, there was so much frisbee activity in austin texas it was just like mind blown and the hottest player at this tournament was alan elliott he was the texas hot shot and even though the freestyle portion was just a demo you know he they they seeded it so that you know alan's going to play last and he played with neil dambra who was a golfer overall ultimate player really good freestyler too so um and i uh Saw Alan there, and he had the gear and the Nike Cortez and just this cool-looking guy, and he had these fingernails, which I had heard about the fingernails but had not yet tried to put them on. I didn't play golf, so I'm just out there freestyling the whole weekend. And I look up, and there's this really skinny, pale guy with these big, huge glasses at me just with his goofy grin just watching me play. And I'm like, okay, who is this guy? And then, I don't know, a few hours later, this guy had on his nails, and he was just shredding. And uh, we ended up, ended up talking, and uh, that was Jim Schmall. So uh, that was my first meeting uh, with Jim. In Austin. Austin, wow. In Austin, and he was a New Orleans guy, and I'd heard about him. I'd heard, hey, this is the guy who's like probably becoming the best freestyler in Louisiana because for the longest time it was uh, a guy named Hunter Johnston. His father was a state senator and, you know, a well-known name in Louisiana, and they went to Tulane, and he was like this awesome ultimate player, and he could do against the spin moves, and Hunter, 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 Hunter. Uh, But then this small guy was starting to get a lot of recognition. You know, he was – long and lean and was doing you know really good moves and so that's was our first meeting was in austin texas there must have been a really big jam scene in louisiana for you guys to have grown up as freestylers and not crossed paths ah he was in new orleans which um you know even though it's about 70 miles away it's uh new orleans is essentially its own 
country. It's a very okay. unique place. So anyway, um, now let's let's go back. Remember, growing up as freestylers, I'm still only eight months into my quote frisbee career, whereas wow. Jim Schmall had been, learned how to nail delay and had been playing frisbee golf since 1976. So he had excellent uh, frisbee skills, throwing, catching, you know, just understanding the flight of the disc. So he was right. light years beyond me. So I get to meet Jim Schmall, uh, who, you know, as you know, we ended up having a, a wonderful history together. The guy became my best friend and I, a lot of great things with him, a great working relationship. And like I say, still one of my best friends in the world, even though we haven't seen each other in 20 some odd years. If we were there in the same room uh, next week, it'd be like no time has passed. And you guys know how that is. It's, you know, your Frisbee brothers are your brothers for life. So I know he goes by Jim Benson now. So how do you refer to him as Jim Benson or Jim Schmall? I refer to him as Jim Benson because that's uh, for historical purposes and, you know, what we're doing right now. Uh, he was Jim Schmall at the time, so I'm going to refer to him as Jim Schmall. I'm not exactly sure when he changed his name, maybe sometime in the 1990s, but, you know, we're on the phone. We used to stay in touch all the time, even after our Frisbee careers had ended. I was in Baton Rouge, and he was in San Diego, and he goes, well, i got some news for you. And I'm like, what? He goes, well, I changed my name. <laughs> I'm like, what? What did you change your name to? He goes, well, I was James Patrick Schmall. Now I am James Alexander Benson. I'm like, why did you do that? He goes, well, I always hated my last name. It's halfway between small and schmuck. True story. So anyway, okay, after Waterloo, I met Jim Schmall. Um, I played in the Frisbee tournament with no nails. We were the worst ones there, guaranteed. We played first. So, you know, that's it was a demo only, but, you know, you're going to put the first guys out there that are kind of have the lamest games, and we did. So we leave that, and I go home, and I practice, and I practice, and I practice, and I practice. And then later the same year, the, uh, the FPA World Championships was held in Austin, Texas. So a bunch of us get together. We go over there, and we're just observing. We're just watching. We're not competing. And if the mind was blown from the local Austin Frisbee scene, just think when you see the Velasquez brothers, the Coloradicals, Donnie Rhodes, Corey Basso, Larry Imperiali. It goes on and on and on. I mean, unbelievable. So I used to carry around a notebook with me. <laughs> and I would write down moves. And I, I may have not gotten to the notebook phase but um it, it was unreal you know i mean if i was hooked before this was this was it this is what i wanted to do i mean these guys were so cool and the austin frisbee scene there was a guy named chris baker who was the promoter and i'm serious i think if you got you know you're on facebook and you see a lot of these pictures and alan elliott posts some of these seriously there would be 10,000 people throughout the day there would be vendors selling you know adult beverages food and we're talking not like your basic you know carnival food or whatever local austin restaurants that would come out uh, with their little booths and they would pay chris baker to set up out there because that's how much foot traffic and that's how much money they were going to make and it was associated with something called aquafest 
and it was held at a place called Auditorium Shores, and there were many other tournaments like this over the years that uh, we attended that literally thousands of people and thousands of dollars in prize money, which that's, um, I don't know if there's any prize money in Frisbee Freestyle anymore. If there is, how much there is. It just seems like, um, and you guys could tell me, you are actively com- competing. Is there any? Yeah, there's a little bit of prize money, but it's um, not very much. It might cover the hotel expense for being at the event, maybe. Yeah, okay. it's minimal. It's minimal. Yeah. It's almost yeah. like, why That's... why we even bother? We should just put the money back into making the event better. It's kind of how I feel. But... I understand what you're saying, which is, you know, I mean, I think the state of the sport is really in a good place because of uh, its international game now but um it is a little disappointing that uh there was much more prize money you got to figure if you go to a tournament you know later in my career when i was doing very well i remember one time in minneapolis i won pairs co-op and mixed playing with gina sample and uh i walked away with over 900 dollars. and in 1986 that's that's good money that's rent for several months and some food and so yeah, it would be it would be nice if the sport uh, you know we see it growing in other areas as far as participation and global. It would be nice if uh, the players could you know get some kind of monetary gain. I, I think maybe the participation would skyrocket. But anyway, a whole different subject. So um, I've seen I've been to the FPA Worlds, did not participate. Mind blown again. So go home from the fall of 1980. Um, into 81, I mean, practice, 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 practice. Um, Getty and I finished second in the WRNO Open, and we probably should have won, but that, that's okay. The uh, the two-lane ultimate team were the judges, so Hunter Johnston and Jim Schmall and Dan Greif, who was another uh, Washington, D.C. kid, they took first, and, uh, you know, we're happy. We did we did well with our performance. And then um, in 1981, in the spring, we went to an NAS tournament again in Austin, again with a huge, huge crowd. And uh, Getty and I made the semis, uh, you know, tough win in Austin in, in the spring. So things are starting to kind of roll. Oh, and I'm, I'm going to step back just a little bit. Uh, right before this tournament in 1981, you know, I've been playing for over a year about a year and a half maybe and just totally obsessed with it and pat carrasco was really really starting to get good like i was hated by most of the ultimate team because i was taking pat away from them he was their big deep threat he could you know cut and get open and read the disc and use you know his body to position and so i was taking pat away from the ultimate team so i was just by the ultimate team for quite some time so anyway nice a, nice job by the way nice nice job way to get him out of there <laughs> I know. look at what it, look at what he turned out to be yes thank you well thank you. well done well done sir yes thank you very much okay so we got this um we got a little ultimate get together it's the two lane team and mobile and i think houston was there so a pretty good little event on the parade grounds and um we had heard there was a guy, I'd actually asked somebody on the Mobile Ultimate team, do you guys have any freestylers? And he says, yeah, we have this one guy, and he, you know, he, he's a martial artist, too, so he, you know, he's pretty flexible. And so I was real excited about seeing this guy, and um, we met him. Um, basically, 
another case of another ultimate team learning to despise me. Uh, he was one of the better players on the Mobile team. Every time, like between games or whatever, he would come over and say, hey, do you mind uh, if I jam with you guys? And this is uh, our first introduction to Daryl Allen, another one of yeah. my very best friends in the world. And Pat and myself and Daryl just become like inseparable. And all right, I got to backtrack a little bit too. All right. 1980, I had been playing just a little over a year, and Getty and I were supposed to play in the Texas State Championships, which, but Getty got mono, lost 20 pounds, and he's weak as a kitten. So I get a number, I pick up the phone, and I call Jim Small, and I go, Hey, are you going to the Texas States? He goes, um, Yeah, I think I might. And I'm like, Okay, you want to play? And he's like, Sure. So this is my first time ever playing with Jim Small is in the 1980 Texas State Championships. And we ended up finishing second. Uh, Rick Castilla came down and played with Alan Elliott. And so we were, we were totally outclassed at that time because, I mean, Rick was just, you know, with the Coloradicals, this is when they were really coming into their own. And, you know, Alan was the Texas it boy. But, you know, finishing second is, is pretty good for just throwing – routine together and it kind of established me and Jim as friends and people that had played in a tournament before okay so where was I we were in 81 uh at the so now you you Daryl Daryl and Pat and you are all starting to groove together and that's just firing you guys up it is firing us beyond belief so not too much after meeting Daryl uh daryl i don't know i guess he was looking for a job he he had a house in mobile and uh pat was doing surveying work you know blue collar stuff outside all day and he's like hey you can come stay at my apartment and i'll get you on this survey crew so daryl moved to baton rouge daryl is there so every i'm and i'm enrolled at lsu pat's not in lsu at this time he's he's a working man this is before he went back to lsu and so every evening after they get off of work, I'm, we're talking like every day we're meeting and we're playing under lights. And so we're just jamming to begin with. And then we like, we said, okay, let's try this co-op. And Pat was mostly counter and Daryl and I were mostly clock. So we had to kind of learn to work around each other and expand our game a little bit. And then before you know it, we had a routine and we weren't planning on playing in a tournament with this it was just kind of like okay we're playing together every day let's you know let's do this this will be fun um so we did a couple of demos and then it's 1981 in the fall alan elliott had just won the bowl with jeff felberbaum and donnie Rhodes. so he's really not just the texas it guy now he's an it guy so he calls me and asks me he goes hey look i'm thinking about flying over to this uh tournament in new orleans um you want to play and I'm like, oh, my gosh. I'm like, Alan Elliott is calling me and asking me to play in a tournament. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of <laughs> going to play with these two guys that, you know. And he goes, okay, do you have uh, do you have Jim Schmall's number? And I'm like, oh, God, yeah, let me give him Jim Schmall's number. So he calls Jim uh, Schmall. Uh, you're I like, know, oh, my God, I'm getting, I'm, getting ta- I'm getting tapped to play. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. So anyway, Alan flies over and, you know. I see him out there, and we jam a little bit. And he goes, hey, well, do you guys have a routine? I said, well, yeah, we got a little routine. He goes, ah, well, you're, you guys are probably going to win or whatever. But Jim was so uber confident that they were going to crush us because, you know, Alan was 
the guy back then. Well, we won the tournament. Uh, it was, you know, a magical performance. And all of our families, like my parents, Daryl's parents, Pat's family, everybody was there. You know, just it was it was just great. So, you know, we win the WRNO Open with this routine. Uh, we took it to Texas stage and finished second to Donnie and Allen, but, you know, there's no shame in that. And a lot of people told us, look, you guys were right there. A lot of people felt like, you know, you should have won. Uh, but, you know, Donnie and, you know, Donnie and Allen at that time were really, really peaking. Yeah. So, and how incorporated song. was, how, how incorporated was the music at that time with, with the routine? Just curious. Not at all. We just kind of uh-huh. lucked out that there was um, now when I played with Jim and Peter, it was completely incorporated with the, you know, with the music. Um, we had learned a lot. It used to be that we would just go out and pick a song and then we would do some co-ops and we would jam. It wasn't until later in our career that we tried to start to build around the music. And it was mostly when uh, we were playing with Peter, to tell you the truth. Um, and then Jim and Daryl and I, uh, for a while, were trying to hit music cues. So anyway, back to uh, the luck of the draw. The song just happened to be perfect, and we had literally done this routine hundreds and hundreds of times. And uh, so it was working real good for us. Um, and for a very short period of time... If you can imagine a player as great as Jim Schmall Benson, he was the odd man out. And I was going to play pairs with Jim in some instances, but the three-way was me and Daryl and Pat. So, but at some point early in 1982, Pat just decided he was going to quit freestyling and he was going to become a ballet dancer and he was going to go back to LSU. He was going to get grants and loans. So he never did quit playing completely but he just kind of i'm not going to travel frisbee is kind of a secondary thing for me which was kind of shocking to me but you know you see how it turned out he's turned out to be like a monster jammer so he circled back he never did lose the uh disease disease as a lot of uh, people have called it around here they thought uh an ex-girlfriend of mine told me that pat was the only person she had ever known that had gotten rid of disease disease but she was wrong it was just festering waiting to come out so anyway pat (laughs) stops playing so then i start playing pairs with jim mostly and naturally jim and daryl and i started playing together and i guess i was always kind of the hub but jim and pat and daryl never played together as a threesome so anyway i guess i was kind of the guy trying to get everybody together and jim and daryl and i did did very very well we we won a lot of national tournaments as a matter of fact we only lost one national tournament ever it was uh donnie allen and camilla and uh allen can tell you about this like i think they dropped one and he, he would say yeah it was a huge upset and as far as world championship um, competitions with Daryl and Jim and I, uh, we were the bridesmaid every time. Hmm. So the first time we ever played together was the 82 FBA World Championships again in Austin. And this is where the routine where Donnie and Chris Ryan and Alan just went off. The, uh, the field was basically dirt. 
Um, the wind was horrible, strong and gusty. And they said, we're not going to do a routine. We're just going to jam. And I mean, it just, it just worked. You, you guys have seen this routine. It's grainy. I'm sure it's grainy. The, the film is not great, but you can see what's happening out there and it's magic. So they're playing with the whammo, which is a little bit more stable. Um, the Frisbee's not hitting the ground to get dirty. So anyway, they won, and um, we finished second, which was a big feather in our hat. The Coloradicals actually finished fourth, and they were the huge favorite. And I remember there was a little snafu with their music, and Donnie and Alan and Chris Ryan had just played and gone off. And, you know, when somebody plays like out of their mind right before you, it's kind of, Oh, it's in your head. And I remember they couldn't get the music started. And Doug Brannigan was pacing around the field and he was going, come on, come on, come on. And things started. And in their weave, the wind just knocked that lighter sky styler down a few times. And it just kind of escalated into what we refer to as Frisbee hell. And, you know, most of the time, the Coloradicals, you never saw them play bad. They were, you know, they're still the standard by what uh, the three-way. If you look at their best routines ever, I would put them above any three-way ever still to this day. So that was, you know, a rare thing for them. So after that tournament, started playing with a whammo rigidity. We had been playing with a Sky Styler. And we saw what Alan and Chris and Donnie had done. It kind of stabilized things with the high wind. And we were really trying to emulate Donnie Rhodes. He was the guy. And we just, I just worked on everything I saw him do. I would try to work on it, work on it, work on it, work on it. And uh, so that's how we started playing with a, high rigidity for basically the rest of our competitive career, which really ended in 1986. Uh, the last time Jim and I ever played together was the, um, the routine in Fort Collins, the dropless one, you know, and we didn't go, Oh, okay. This is our last, our big finale. It just, uh, we never played together again after that. That was it. So anyway, so there is the synopsis of the Bayou blaster history best friends in my entire life to this day, Jim, Daryl, Pat, Getty. Those are my guys. Frisbee freestylers, my main partners. So, yeah. you know, I'm, that's a life-changing thing when you're very best friends. You know, you're 57 years old and, you know, the best friends that you have are the guys that you played Frisbee with. It is so true that your Frisbee friends really do stay friends for life. Um, I certainly am experiencing that now, and it's one of the joys that I have. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I'm staying with this sport for as long as I have. It's because it's my social connection. I have so many friends, and heck, my wife came from Freestyle Frisbee, so <laughs> what else can you say beyond that? <laughs> So before we sign off, I just want to encourage folks to donate to our initiatives, uh, the Frisbee Guru Initiatives, uh, Haynesville Shooting the Frisbees, and the live stream. Your donations are what keep the lights on and will support us moving forward, so we're really looking out for your help. So thank you very much. Uh, thanks for tuning in. It's good talking to you, Randy. You too, Jake. Talk to you next week.
Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check out our website at frisbeeguru.com. <laughs> <laughs>